Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome to Freedom of Species, the animal advocacy show on 3CR. You've just heard Out of the Pan with Sally Goldner. Sally's a great fan of the show and we're great friends of Sally's. You can tune in to Sally's show every Sunday at 12 on 3CR. I'm here today, it's Caroline, and my co-host is Claire. And I wanted to acknowledge that I'm um, coming to you from Boonwurrung country, I'm actually um, in Narringorling, which is Sweetwater Creek. Gunnarong people are, you know, water people. And I want to acknowledge that uh, sovereignty has never been ceded from the stolen lands in which um, I live. And I'm coming to you from um, Dadawurrung country in central Victoria. I'd like to pay respects to elders past and present um, and extend that um, respect to the First Nations peoples on whose lands you're listening from today. You know, sometimes acknowledgements can be seen as just words, but it actually it's a really important protocol um, to place ourselves in relation to people and place and respect the First Nations peoples on whose countries we are. So we're really, really excited today that we're recording with Zane McNeil. And Zane is a non-binary scholar activist from West Virginia who's published edited collections with Sanctuary Publishers, PM Press, Lantern Publishing and Media and Routledge. Just got onto the Routledge book. Mm-hmm. They were the recipient of the 2022 National Lawyer Guild's Legal Work Worker Award for their labour and animal rights organising and are a co-manager of the collective Rights for Animal Rights Advocates, or RARA. And a big welcome, Zane. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm currently in uh, Denver, Colorado in the US. (laughs) Right, right. Fantastic. Well, we really appreciate um, you making the time and it's really great to meet you. So we thought we'd start with one of our usual questions. Can you tell us a bit about your background and, you know, your formative years and, I guess your growing awareness of injustice towards animals, et cetera. Sure. So I've been organizing in animal welfare and animal rights space for over a decade. I worked for all of the uh, the big names animal rights in the U.S., including the ASPCA, ALDF, HSUS, the Humane League, Farm Sanctuary, among a few others. I was really lucky that my parents were both really invested in solidarity spaces. Both my parents were teachers and were very active in the strikes and anti-Iran and Iraq protests. And so they really got me involved in advocacy at a very young age, like in elementary school. And I was raised sort of uh, by goddess worshippers and pagans and Buddhists. And so I always had a a great connection to, to animals and the earth. And so I started recognizing the really injustices and the exploitation of animals since I was very, very young and started organizing against that in, in high school and have since moved into governmental relations and public policy and grassroots organizing work out of that over the past decade. Amazing. I read in the uh, Queer and Trans Voices Achieving Liberation Through Consistent Anti-Oppression book, which I absolutely love that yes that you said that you were raised by eco-feminist 
and you know you read sort of Alice Walker and, and Carol Adams and Greta so Gard very very young when my mom yeah. has books in the 80s she was the first uh women's and genders rights and studies I I guess uh graduate from West Virginia University and so I always had those books growing up but they must have been really fascinating conversations in your house I feel like it's really interesting because I always grew up sort of understanding that enlightenment thought was really patriarchal and oppressive. And so I was really raised through these feminist teachings and then went to college and came into that understanding that it's interesting now because I'm currently in law school where there's a great investment in enlightenment thought and enlightenment logic. And it's it's very interesting to kind of challenge and disrupt that in these spaces. Mm. Mm. And can you tell us a little bit about sort of, you know, West Virginia, for, for those of us who are not super familiar, what, what was that sort of environment like for you growing up? Yeah, West Virginia is part of the Appalachian region of the United States. And I didn't really have a West Virginian identity until leaving it. In 2016, during the Trump election, there was this book called Hillbilly Elegy um, that came out by J.D. Vance, who's now a senator that really sort of wrote the region for a lot of people who weren't from it, kind of showing it as this sacrifice zone of the opioid epidemic of people who were less than everyone else. And so a lot of people use this scapegoat region during the Trump election and since then. So I've done a lot of work trying to reimagine Appalachia as a queer liberatory space and an ecologically liberatory space outside of the extraction zone. There's a lot of natural resource extraction that happens there with mines and natural resources in general. And currently, a lot of the anti-trans and anti-queer legislation is happening in Appalachia and the South. And so trying to combat that as well. Fantastic. And what about sort of your own... um, you know, development of your own sort of political and sort of ideological approaches. You know, I know that you've, um, you know, done a master's and you talked about it in the book, yeah, starting with political science, you know, can you talk us through what that, that sort of was like? Sure. So my bachelor's is actually in, in history and specifically in intellectual history. I did a lot of work trying to dismantle the kind of history that we're taught in the U.S., which specifically was very ideological and and war-based, right? Because I went to school during the Iraqi war, specifically in a lot of the U.S. nationalism um, and the mythology around that. So in when I was doing my, my BA, I was really trying to actually unlearn all of that. And I did a lot of work um, on Ida B. Wells and trying to combat this history of this kind of whitewashed history of the suffrage movement and how a lot of the white suffrage movement in the U.S. was really about aligning with white supremacists to really solidify the white vote in the South and how it harmed Black and, and queer people in the South. And then I continued into my MA, which I did in Budapest, Hungary, and for listeners who maybe aren't as aware of Hungarian politics, that's it's sort of an authoritarian, so-called illiberal democracy in Hungary. And my school was actually pushed out of the country right after I left. So I was there during the last year. I was in Hungary under the Viktor Orban parliament and um, under the Lex CU legislation. I went to Central European University. And so my MA there was on gay assimilationist politics and pink capitalism and how Black trans leaders have really tried to combat that. So kind of a continuation of my interest in social movement studies, as well as queer of color critique from the Ida B. Wells work I did. And then I was was there while I was getting pushed out of the country. And and despite it's really focused on populist, anti-authoritarian politics, I was also targeted during my my MA after I came out as non-binary. And I was actually pushed out of my department into gender studies, which was seen as sort of a lesser department from political science. And I had to rewrite my whole thesis in three weeks right before I graduated because my Hungarian advisor was uncomfortable with my theory as well as my identity. Wow. That's shocking. It was, it was a lot. <laughs> um, it's very difficult because I've existed in a lot of, of liberal arts spaces which have challenged authoritarian governments, but at the same time been very anti-trans and anti-queer in the process. 
And some of the work I did while I was at CSCU also was about one of our medics had a history of um, trigger warning, sexually assaulting students. And so I was speaking to a lot of the people because our MA was only about 10 months. So there wasn't a lot of, a lot of people went into it and then left. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of space to combat that. And so when I realized one of my friends was sexually assaulted by the doctor there, I realized it's been going on for years and started getting testimonies. But when I spoke up against it, the administration sort of said that in, that you would be uh, charged with defamation, maybe, and really tried to quiet that because he was connected to the Orban government. And so he ended up retiring, quote unquote, retiring very celebrated, but at the the risk of quieting and retaliating against students who spoke up against the sexual assaults he had done. So I've lived in a lot of these spaces that do a lot of good work against authoritarian policies, but also really quiet and retaliate against students and, and people who speak out against their more problematic policies as well. Mm-hmm. I found this all really interesting because I actually have lived in Budapest myself. (laughs) I was teaching English there um, as a foreign language um, quite a while ago. And, yeah, I found it. I lived in Slovakia previous Mm -hmm. to that for 14 months. And so that was a really interesting difference going between those two Eastern European countries um, and actually finding Budapest so much more liberal and open and, alternative than Slovakia but yeah watching the the developments in Hungarian politics since then and I think you know in the same ways that happens in a lot of countries the capital city doesn't always necessarily represent the wider mood of the country and so yeah you sort of find your little enclaves of safety in in capital cities sometimes but yeah there's um, deep conservatism and, and histories of so much oppression um, and anti-Semitic genocide and and so forth. And, and yeah, just, just the... Anti-Roma, race. too. There's a very yeah, anti-Roma. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was very interesting so, when I was in Budapest yeah. I actually had a mentor there who was teaching at one of the American universities because um, I went to McDaniel, McDaniel College for my undergrad, which is also a campus in Budapest, which is how I found out about CU and I studied abroad there. And he was a teacher there, but he was part of SNCC in the, the U.S. So he was part of the Black Liberation Movement in the 60s and the 70s and then went to Budapest to do Roma advocacy because he saw it as a very similar um, solidarity movement. But whenever I was there, there was like old school salons, like, you know, what you'd read about like in the 20s, but they'd literally be in cellars and basements because of the the fascist police there. And, you know, I had friends who were beat up by fascists and police. I had gay bars that I lived nearby that were raided. And so it was really interesting and, and to, to exist there as a, as a queer person, but has really contextualized my existence in the U.S. with the rise of authoritarianism. Because I, like, I lived in uh, Florida, which DeSantis has really connected. He's like met with the president of Hungary and Viktor Orban has spoken at CPAC in, in the U.S. And they're going to have CPAC in Hungary. And so understanding this slide into fascism in the U.S., through my existence in Budapest and my MA, which is really focused in populist and authoritarian studies. And so even though it's very difficult for me to be in these spaces as a queer and trans, you know, I'd like to say radical person that has been sort of pushed to the margins at the same time, existing now in the US is as a trans person in a a time of really genocide has, has really helped me exist through the understanding of how it's following into Hungary's footsteps and the footsteps of other authoritarian governments outside of the U.S. as well. Yeah, incredible experiences that you've had, Zane. There's just so much in that that's so concerning about the political struggles that, you know, people are facing in those difficult sort of fascist, you know, environments. We might take a pause and go to a song. And your first song, I think, is Frog on the Floor by 100 Gex. Yes, this right? should be a fun one. <laughs> so tell us about that song, though. So recently came out 100 Gex. Actually, the singer is trans, and I followed them for a while. When I first heard them, probably in, like, 2017, I was like, this is so Gen Z. You know, I'm, I'm a millennial, and I was just like, I don't understand it. It's it's very much, like, electric, um, electronic, like, weird hyper-pop music. But as it's really grown on me. Um, 100 Gex, I think, sees 
as the world through trans envisioning of what existence can be and trying to like I think of understanding music through like art history sort of and so I feel like Hundred Gaps is sort of Dadaism to to music and, and so it really just deconstructs sort of where we are in, in a, a hyper capitalist era and just plays mm. on that and just really goes with it um, which I think is so much fun because it almost acts as a I don't know if they're trying to critique it, but it acts as a critique of where we are right now with this hyper consolidated capitalist, the corporate kind of space. And it's a really fun song. Frog on the floor, where'd he come from? Nobody knows where he'll go. He's been chilling in the basement for a minute. I just think it's time we moved into the kitchen. Preston Life Saving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and membership with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists. The North Preston Life Saving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment, including a kiln. To find out more and to show your support for independent creatives, please visit their Facebook page, North Preston Life Saving Club. North Preston Life Saving Club is a 3CR supporter. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 03 9419 8377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. We hope you're enjoying your 3CR podcast. We're a community radio station that does one big fundraiser each year. Right now, we need your help to raise $275,000. We hope you can contribute. 
Head to 3cr.org.au slash donate and please make a tax-deductible donation. And now, back to your podcast. Welcome back to Freedom is Species, the show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. And you just heard Frog on the Floor. And you're with Caroline and Claire today, and we're talking with Zane McNeil. So great to have you with us, Zane. So we thought we'd start talking um, about or ask you about some of your writing. You know, we talked a little bit about the Queer and Trans Voices book, which is absolutely fantastic. But I've been reading Vegan Entanglements, Dismantling Racial and Carceral Capitalism and of course, in our show notes, we always give everybody links to things. And this is something, you know, a book that I really recommend people to read. It's really, really fascinating and really thought provoking. Of course, we hope people then go and have conversations with their network of people and, and you know, on and on it goes. But would you like to give us a little bit of background about how this book sort of came to be? Yes, thank you. So, Like I said, I've worked in animal welfare and advocacy spaces for about 10 years. And at each of these, I've had different experiences that made me uncomfortable, especially with the reliance on the police in the U.S. and these sort of carceral logics and carceral logics as in wanting to imprison and and really go after people for, for existing, both factory farm workers as well as people who just engage in animals in a lot of way, instead of really targeting the capitalist systems that exploit and gain capital off of these non-human lives. And so when I was working at the ASPCA in 2019, I remember being in this really small group of people. This was right after the U.S. elections, and there were a lot of, a lot of Republicans who had fallen out because of the quote-unquote blue wave. And so the ASPCA were like, what are we going to do about this? Because a lot of Republicans in the U.S. actually are good for companion companion animal legislation. Um, And so they're like, well, maybe we'll use anti-immigrant rhetoric to connect with people. And I was so upset. You know, I left this meeting and that was maybe one of the first times I really had thought about how the animal welfare system is connected to the prison industrial complex and the immigrant um, policing complex in the U.S. And I ended up working a few years after at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And one of the things they really prize themselves with, similarly to the ASPCA, is working with police departments and increasing felony charges against animal abusers and people who work in these systems. And so I had read this book by Justin Marceau, who is a, a law professor at the University of Denver called Beyond Cages. And when I was working at the ALDF, a lot of people were really pissed at him for writing it because he called the ALDF, ALDF out specifically. And so I had read this on really why animal law targets these marginalized people and why that harms people. And I had worked with a lot of animal advocates who had either been incarcerated or charged with things or had worked with immigrant populations who were more marginalized um, against punitive justice systems. And so I wanted to draft this book with these communities I was involved with on why this carceral approach to animal law doesn't actually help animals. It just harms marginalized populations. And so that's kind of where vegan entanglements came from. Uh, And I think that, Sorry. Yeah, that was a really strong part of the book for me. I, I finished it yesterday and, and I couldn't really identify where some of my uncomfortability with um, with mainstream sort of vegan activism came from. I could I, I could never really put my finger on it, but it was always very much this idea of like a single issue veganism and then just a lot of support for extremely, particularly in Australia, extremely problematic men um, who were like these leaders of the movement and, you know, a, a whole bunch of discourse about being a voice for the voiceless and so forth. But reading Vegan Entanglements really, you know, just really solidified, yeah, a lot of why a lot of the carceral politics of of veganism, um, yeah, never, never particularly sat well with me. And yeah, so I I just found it really, really useful. And and as Caroline said, extremely thought provoking um, text and very clarifying. And and I think everyone should read it. I'm very lucky because a lot of, I came into vegan advocacy and then I found everything else out because being a white person in Appalachia, I uh, didn't have to really interrogate my whiteness or my connections to these large oppression. 
until I came out as non-binary and and realized how so much of the industrial animal animal agriculture space is also connected to white supremacy, connected to capitalism, connected to ableism, and et cetera. And so I've been very lucky to learn from vegans of color who've been doing this work for decades. And this book is sort of informed by their work, you know, and queer and trans veganism. I worked with Julia Feliz, who came up with the term consistent anti-oppression. And so the idea is you can't work towards animal liberation without liberating everyone because these systems are so interconnected and vice versa. We can't fight for queer and trans liberation without also fighting for non-human animal liberation because these complexes are there to oppress all of us. And so to disrupt one, you have to disrupt all of them. And so this collection on vegan entanglements was really trying to see these intersections, not just towards the carceral system in the U.S. and the U.K. and abroad, but also towards the, you know, the ableism we see, the misogyny, the cis-heteropatriarchy that enacts both within the prison industrial complex and outside of it that affects non-human animals and the rest of us as well. I had, I've sort of had the opposite journey. So I started out being a leftist and only became a vegan recently. And so, yeah, it was consistent anti-oppression just sits so well with me because, you know, having been an activist since I was 16 and, and very similar to you being taken on rallies when I was a kid by my mum, we used to go to the Palm Sunday peace marches um, in Australia, which were big, um, organised by the um, People for Nuclear Disarmament. I can't remember the name of the, the campaign exactly, but something along those lines. And so, yeah, some of my earliest memories from being a kid was being on a protest march when I was little. Um, but, yeah, it is really important to bring those leftist radical politics into vegan activism. Yeah, and so much of my, pretty much all of my work, is trying to make vegans less single issue because in a lot of times they reify these systems of oppression and really tokenize and and kind of antagonize non-human animals even when trying to advocate for them, right? You're talking about voice for the voiceless. So many people who are attracted to vegan advocacy, they can't be criticized or won't hear the criticism from the people they're representing, the non-human animals they're representing, right? And that's maybe why they don't fit as well with other social justice issues. And so I try to make vegans a little less problematic in that way. And then also try to bring a lot of the leftist spaces I know, especially around queer Appalachian spaces and say, hey, non-human liberation affects us too and why that matters. And so I don't know if I'm succeeding in that, but I I keep trying (laughs) for years and years and years of trying to bring these social justice spaces into conversation with each other because we can't fight against these systems unless we're all working together. Um, My academic background's in Indigenous studies, and so I've read a lot of Indigenous critiques of conservationism and the way in which um, things like national parks are actually instituted, supposedly for the national good. There's all this mythologising around national parks, but are actually part of ongoing settler colonial genocide against Indigenous peoples. And and you can see that playing out very much in vegan spaces is a total disrespect for Indigenous sovereignty and very little grappling with what it means to be an activist um, on stolen Indigenous lands. Yeah, in the US, um, a lot of what I worked on in, in 2018 was hey, you know, Appalachia isn't just surviving as a queer person, but you can thrive in these spaces, right? And so what does a queer Appalachia look like? But then I was, I've really been trying since then to to grapple with this idea that you can't queer a space that isn't yours, right? And how queering spaces and being a queer person in the space is a settler, colonial, settler colonialism really is an extension of that. Um, and so a lot of my new work is trying to really interrogate those systems of power, even in queer spaces. And I have this collection coming out soon on bringing Indigenous thought and critiques of settler colonialism into queer theory in Appalachia. But it it is very difficult, right? Because a lot of those spaces you have to remove yourself from. Like you can't queer a space that isn't yours. You can't veganize a space that isn't yours. And a lot of vegan advocates really don't consider the way that they are enacting violence, even when they're trying to voice against and and challenge these industrial processes that hurt non-human animals in the earth. 
Right. Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff in Australia with, um, so in the 90s, um, Indigenous activists went to court and won what's called native title, which is a very weak form of um, property rights under um, British common law, but um, it does grant um, Indigenous people some access to, to country in order to practice traditional um, hunting and gathering and ceremony and so forth. And there, yeah, there's been a lot of really problematic targeting of Indigenous communities by vegan activism and just really sort of missing, as Vegan Entanglements points out, like missing the big picture, like terrorising Indigenous communities or workers in factory farms doesn't actually save any animals. It, it just bolsters the carceral state, actually, at the end of the day. A hundred percent. And I was just reading again this morning the contribution by, is it Kanika Sud? Kanika is really great. Kanika was also in queer and trans veganism, yep. Yeah, so the perspective from India saying that, you know, they noticed on their Facebook feed a well-known Indian animal liberation activist yelling at vendors selling fish in the streets of Mumbai, you know, saying that they were going to um, file a first information report against them and get them arrested for conducting an illegal activity. And so the vendors plead with the activists, you know, please don't do that. You know, we're poor. We're trying to provide for ourselves, our family, da, da, da. And the activist was unrelenting and demanded that they leave or face sooner serious repercussions. And then in sharing that information on Facebook, other activists have, you know, commended that. It's just extraordinary how ignorant and racist some people can be, right? You know, I was really not that shocked. <laughs> but just so so dismayed you know it's, it's so difficult because I started writing about two months ago with this uh, leftist uh, media space called Truth Out I'm a breaking news fellow with them and I check our our comments on my pieces on Facebook right and I just wrote one connecting DeSantis in Florida to or Victor Orban like I was talking about earlier and one person on Twitter was just like let's need Palm of Florida right because that's the answer instead of being like, hey, there are queer and trans and, and and Southern activists who have been fighting for decades, right, for autonomy in these spaces. And you see that a lot uh, when people write off Appalachia and the South in the U.S. as well, being like, well, they can either leave or, or screw them, right? They voted for it. Instead of rec recognizing there's a big issue with, with voting rights because of gerrymandering in the U.S. and also this is history of, of anti-Black voting laws, Right. And if you're also if you're just poor, it's very hard to vote. You know, it's hard to get the time to get out there. You aren't giving times off. And also a lot of these parties in the U.S., this two party system, people aren't advocating for you because even the, the main Democrats in the U.S. don't care about the South anyway. So that's been very difficult to navigate as someone who really tries to do more liberation work. And something else is a lot of these, you know, animal welfare nonprofits, um, I, I assumed that they were entangled in this nonprofit industrial system, right? And I'm a little more disillusioned now thinking that in the U.S. at least, a lot of these organizations are funded by these mega millionaires that don't want to endanger their access to capital, right? They want to be able to have their tax write-off, but they don't want to do enough to get the social capital via some helping companion animals without endangering the way they have, they have access to their, their money and, the, and everything else. And so a lot of these organizations reify these existing structures. And I think they know they do it. And that's what's been so difficult for me as, as a liberation activist in these animal welfare spaces is that for the past five years, I'm like, hey, you must be doing something wrong. You must be mistaken. Like, this is the way to do equity work. But I think a lot of these organizations are actually set up to not do equity and liberation work because it's against the, the interests of their own funders. And there's often a real lack of interrogation around the settler colonial nature of such comments as well. Like in Australia, when, you know, when we've had conservative governments elected, everybody's like, oh, I'm going to move to New Zealand. And it's like, okay, what does that mean as a settler that you can just pick up and move to another person's stolen country because you don't like the government? 
because, you know, for Indigenous people, that's not an option. Like people are connected to country and to place and you can't just abandon somewhere because of the ruling politics. You've got to stand and fight um, for place and people. Yeah, and, and just the idea of napalming, like, you know, the, mm. this is sacred Indigenous land. Oh, violence, yeah, everything, right? And in, in the U.S., one of the only um, waterways that has legal personhood is in Florida near Orlando, the Wakiva, the Wakiva River, right? And the non-human animals, in addition to the, the people who <laughs> exist, the Hispanic population, you know, Black folks, uh, queer and trans folks that are existing in Florida, right? And this idea, and I've done solidarity and mutual aid work in these spaces for decades, if not even like a 100 or so years, right? So the idea of just like, hey, let's kill everyone, right? You can see how all vegan advocacy can be connected to white supremacy, and, and fascism, right? You see a lot of eco-fascism in these spaces that are continuing to grow, which should show people how concerning it is to do this work without a consistent anti-oppression approach. Yeah. Ooh, I think we're going to take a pause. Fantastic conversation. And we'll go to your second song, Zane, which is Gender Binary, Fuck You by Ryan Kasata. A favourite? It's it's really good. I just saw Ryan actually at this really small like music collective, seventh collective in in Denver, and I was so excited to see him. There's like 30 people there, and I was right next to him this whole time. I was like freaking out. Ryan Casadas, this awesome um, trans guy that has not gone on on hormones because he likes his voice, right? And so a lot of his work is this, talking about his transition without uh, gender affirming care. And why that matters in his in his existence to him and his family, as well as him and his partners. I'm gonna wear girls' clothes when I want to. I'm gonna wear boys clothes when I please So fuck you, fuck you, fuck you For telling me to fit inside your gender binary I won't fit inside your gender binary I'm gonna break all the stereotypes you set up for me All those stereotypes telling me I have to be man Chopping up every now and then. Monty, Auntie. Thanks, Bob. Including your COVID protection. 
If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID-19 booster. It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID-19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID-19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. back with Freedom of Species, the show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. And you just heard gender binary fuck you. Caroline and Claire are super excited to be with Zane McNeil today. Hello. So so we thought we might talk a little bit about RARA, which is Rights for Animal Rights Advocates. It's an organisation set up by Zane to ensure animal rights advocates work or volunteer under just and sustainable conditions. Yes, and others. So I wasn't actually part of the the founders of it. It was founded by uh, a good mix of advocates across the world um, in South America and the UK and, and Turkey. Um, who were all part of this one international animal rights organization that all faced retaliation for speaking out of about working conditions. And so they really wanted to create sort of a, a glass door model where you could talk about the diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice issues at a lot of these organizations. A lot of them had been burnt out and faced uh, trauma from working in these spaces and so a lot of them have, have left the animal rights organizations entirely and have gone into other fields. And so right now, RARA, we had tried out as a nonprofit, faced a lot of backlash from funders in the space, and so um, dissolved our nonprofit status in the U.S. And now we're more of a collective. It's me who is part of the co-manager and then one of the co-founders who lives in, in Turkey, Denise Kober. And Denise had worked with Beyond Carnism and Save Animal Save Organization. I worked in a lot of others, and I had faced different labor and employment issues at each of these. Um, both of us had had faced tons of labor infringements. I, you know, trigger warning, had been uh, sexually assaulted while working at animal rights organizations. Um, I've I've faced retaliation. Um, I've I've faced a lot of cis heteropatriarchal misogyny in these spaces that made it hard for me to exist and have left a lot of the organizations I've worked for. Currently, I'm also facing retaliation at animal law space I'm working with now. And so there's a, a issue with nonprofits generally, but specifically animal welfare nonprofits that bring a lot of young advocates in um, and see them as exploitable. And so don't pay them enough, don't give them enough working benefits, and then really just let them leave. And there's this huge issue with retention in these spaces because of these working issues. And it doesn't make us as a movement with these labor issues as integral to it to be able to continue to do the work where that we're able to do. And you've seen this with the Me Too AR space where a lot of advocates talked out about sexual harassment and assault in these organizations. You've seen this with the union busting work that's happened in ALDF and other movements. And so what RARA has tried to do in these spaces is gives advocates a, a platform to speak up against these labor rights infringements, as well as say, it's not your fault. Because a lot of the rhetoric we hear at the organizations is if you speak up, you're hurting the animals, um, yeah. that that you're hurting these organizations, you're hurting the the movement, you know, and that's not true. The movement is hurting itself by not prioritizing the safety and well-being of, of its employees, because staff and advocates are who want to liberate these spaces. And so when you quiet and push them out, and, and harm them, that makes us less able to do the liberation work that we need to be doing for non-human animals and others. Yeah. 
couldn't agree more. And, you know, I really firmly believe there's a huge responsibility and duty of care by organisations, collectives, groups of people, friends, advocates working together to look out for others' safety. You know, you need to prioritise safety and, you know, the huge number of sexual assaults, sexual harassment that we've heard by, as you said, Claire, problematic men who are propped up mm-hmm. in the movement is is seriously concerning. And, you know, there have been some really high-profile incidents of that over recent years and often people are just shut down because we're detracting from the good work this person does for the animals. I'm like, no. And even after the really putting yourself out there, right, to be either fired or pushed out, speaking up against these these male leaders and management and really putting your neck out there, even if you're able to stay in these groups and the, and the men leave, they've really moved into a, a lot of the EA speak spaces, like the effective altruism, the the um, cellular meat spaces and brought their funders with them without any actual consequences, Right. While the the woman and the non-binary folks who've spoken out against them have been pushed to the margins of the animal advocacy space. And so Rara has really struggled um, to be able to do this work because of this retaliation. But what we've heard so much good from communities, especially just letting them know that they aren't alone, that this is an endemic in the animal advocacy space and that it's not their fault because so many of us have been poisoned with this idea that it's a problem with us instead of the yeah. space, right? Because we all are people who really care. And so that makes us easy to exploit from the more difficult <laughs> and, and endangering people in, the, in these spaces. Yeah, I do feel it's quite common to see passionate advocates not prioritize their own self-care, right? Because someone or animals are suffering more than I am, you know, that kind of... And organisations totally exploit that, right? I mean, irrespective of whether they're activist-based organisations or, you know, the caring professions, whatever, you know, there is all of these organisations and institutions in society run very much on knowing that they can totally exploit the commitment of the people who are working from them, whether that's teachers because they're committed to their students, you know, social workers because they're committed to their clients and so forth. But, yeah, I think it's... These volunteer direct action spaces, right, Um, like DXC, have had huge issues um, with sexual assault and harassment in their spaces. And so I think what I'm most proud of with RARA is that we have recommendations uh, for organisations and collectives about ways to make it more equitable, what that looks like. And that's one of the reasons why I have realized that these, it's not like organizations don't know what good work and equitable work is, right? It's that it's actually predicated and built on these exploitation models because that's the way they save more money and get more people in what they don't really care about making people safe um, or doing just work, even if it's in the best, as even if it's the best for the animals. Um, it's predicated on these these capitalist cis heteropatriarchal logics because that's what funders and management have built these organizations thinking through, right? That's why unionization and worker co-ops are are such a, a terror for the for these groups, right? That's why they've spent so much money getting union busting attorneys to to bust unions is because they're, they're so scared of autonomy and transparency in these organizations that were set up to not let that happen. And I think it's interesting to interrogate the kind of people that are attracted to a politics that is around speaking for voiceless, you know, yeah. speaking for the supposedly voiceless. Like I think, you know, when you have that as your main discourse about what your activism involves, it definitely attracts a certain kind of activist who, yeah, wants to be some kind of white saviour and doesn't want to actually be accountable in terms of their political activism and their interpersonal sort of relations because, you know, the victims in this situation are considered to be without agency and so they can never be held accountable for the ways in which they act. 
Exactly. There's no criticism there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when very often the cishet men in these spaces are criticized by the non-binary and, and non-white folks in these spaces, they push them out, right? Even after in the US, the the move towards DEI, which I think was really weaponized um, against the unionization of workers. But even those recommendations were ignored. The DEI consultants that were brought in in 2020 to be able to fundraise on equitable workplaces because that was suddenly profitable, their recommendations were not met in these organizations. And that was on purpose, right? Because they don't want to lose access to capital and they don't want to endanger their funders' access to capital. They want to work with police and they want to solidify these power complexes that already exist. And it's very difficult to either work within these systems or outside of them to do liberation work for non-human animals because of that. Yeah. Well, sadly, we've only got two minutes left. (laughs) (laughs) This always happens. There's always Um, so much more to say, right? (laughs) Yeah, so much. Well, there is. There's just so much to cover. And, you know, the work you're doing is really, really extraordinary, Zane. And, you know, I really really appreciate it. It's been very difficult very lately because yeah you know I've I've been a so-called activist and and academic on the margins for a few years now um and you know I've been doing DI consulting for these organizations too and it's it's difficult um to come from an act a a space of animal liberation work and feel like you're being chewed up right and then spit back out um no matter what space you're in uh and and it's it's good to know that there's us doing this work towards true liberation and that the the people who have access to this this fundraising and and the larger platforms need us right they they can't succeed in the work and their missions that they say they want to do without our dedication and their support of us so i appreciate for you for having me on more than welcome in this last little moment all right so this is why this all just doesn't work out because we can talk <laughs> to you for a couple of hours. I know. Thank you so much for <laughs> chatting with me. I really appreciate it. This is really fun. Sorry, so I was saying, well, hopefully maybe you'd be happy to come back another time because um, of course, yeah, yeah. I, I only I this week heard about your out. Routledge book and I thought, oh, yes. we can talk about that too. Oh, my gosh. I would love to talk about Korea politics. That one is so much fun. Yeah. And, so and the new but the, book. I was like, oh, my God, I want to talk to you about the new book. <laughs> well, well, do you want to do that? that? That's the thing. Like, for this last section, you know, we'll, we'll be totally We can. I mean, it's a, a lot of the work is, is in different spaces, right? That's the coolest thing about being an independent scholar is that you can yeah. kind of exist in all these spaces and piss a lot of people off without any kind of backlash in, in any way that actually matters. And so, yeah, yeah that book is a lot um, based on my thesis and my interest on bodies in motion and bodies in protest and how that can be seen as sort of like a, a kind of queer art expression and and move, movements in space as an aesthetic, which is so much fun. So we can talk about that or animal law or whatever. Okay. Well, want. look, it's up to you. I mean, we can talk about that and then, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds yeah, great. Yeah. All right. Amazing. Okay. Damn the time running away. <laughs> Would you like to talk really quickly about your new book? Yes. So I just had a collection come out with Martin Zabracki, who is a critical geographer in Leeds, who I met on politics as as art, as public art. A lot of, of his work is, is art and geography. And my interest in this topic on choreographed politics and movement building is really understanding and recontextualizing and reframing protest as an aesthetic piece and why that matters. And so a lot of the chapters are trying to challenge the same things we've talked about today, cis-heteropatriarchy, you know, refocusing on Indigenous studies, bringing queer and trans critique into these spaces, and not just think of protest as, you know, in the the U.S., they, they think a lot about reframing it as violent and and animalistic and all those other racist undertones and thinking through how it's really choreographed it's on purpose and why protest as movement matters both in non-human liberation spaces as well as other spaces so if you're interested in critical geographies and and choreopolitics and dance studies and in art and public art um, socially engaged art i'd recommend checking that book out as well fantastic definitely will Maybe we can talk about that 
the time. But for now, we just have to thank you so much for joining us, Zane. It's, yeah, it's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much. We will share links to your work with the show. And thanks so much, Claire. It's been awesome. Thank you. Partnering up with you. <laughs> so thanks, listeners. If you have any feedback on the show, please feel free to email us at freedomofspecies at gmail.com. And we're going to go out with your last song, which is Zark, part one, the grave digger. Zark, right? part one, the grave digger. So I. Like uh, Professor Goldstein. Yeah, a few years ago, I was in this, uh, I was in Baltimore, Maryland, which is a really wonderful, really cool vegan soul food uh, art resistance politics based in this, in this punk scene. And Professor Goldstein was one of my friends I met in there in the punk ska space. So I love her work. She's a, a wonderful intervention. She does a lot of music theory for students um, as, a, as a trans woman and her students love her. Um, and so it's really bringing the personal as the political into classrooms. Fantastic. All right, this is Professor Goldstein. Writing songs
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.